we're going to look today at the end of our series on prayer and worship. We're going to talk about what worship looks like from a little bit of a different perspective. And um, I was thinking a little bit this week about worship and compared it to some experiences I had when I was a um, seminary student. Susan and I got married almost 18 years ago. We moved immediately to Fort Worth, Texas, where I started Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and so we started immediately there. Susan started teaching immediately. In fact, we um, got married, went on our honeymoon, got back into Fort Worth, Texas. First time we'd, we were moving there, uh, like at 6 o'clock in the morning, and Susan had a meeting, her first teaching meeting at 10 a.m. So we like started immediately. And so we were there, and while we were there, Susan was um, the major support for us while I was in school. In fact, uh, at seminary, they give the spouses uh, a Ph.T., a putting him through degree, all right? And so she got that as we left. So we, uh, she was making, but I supplemented our income by working at a fine arts preschool. Anybody ever been to a fine arts preschool? Fine arts preschool was a um, uppity preschool, all right? It was fancy. And I was there not as a teacher, not as anything other than the guy that in the afternoon stayed with the kids until their moms or dads picked them up. And so there were all kinds of, of influential people in that preschool. There were all kinds of people that made good money in that preschool. And so occasionally, being the assistant workers, you got opportunities that you wouldn't normally get. And so I, I remember in particular one instance when um, we got a call, and we were coming in later that day, and um, there was just this call from my friend that went to seminary with me. Um, we'd actually been to union together, and he said, hey, somebody... As one of the one of the parents has tickets to the Rangers baseball game tonight, and they're not going to use them. And wondered if we wanted to use them. So they're like, sure, that'd be great. The seminary students were not going to a lot of Rangers games, and so we went and picked up the tickets. Uh, had to go to their gated community to get the tickets at the gate. Right? We get there. What we realize is it's the orthopedic surgeon for the Rangers, and so his tickets are literally on the third row at the on deck circle on the Rangers' dugout. I mean, they were close. They were close enough. I caught a T-shirt from the T-shirt cannon and only knocked over two children to get it, all right? And so that was it. So, they, I mean, they were close. I and mean, it was an amazing... I mean, we, pulled, we had parking passes under the stadium, got out. They handed us a program. They escorted us to our seats. I said, the only thing I'm concerned about is somebody's going to break their leg and they're going to say, where's the orthopedic surgeon? We need them now because we're not doing anything, all right? So you get opportunities like that. And they also had secret pals there. And y'all, I'm sure some of y'all have been teachers or in places where secret pals are there and they help out or give stuff. And, and most of the time, those are nice little gifts. The thing is, at Kinder Plots, that was the name of the preschool, the secret pal gifts were up a notch. Like I walked in one day and there was Banana Republic stuff for me, all right? High-end stuff, all right? And then another time, Susan and I got tickets to the symphony. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if you can tell this by looking at me. I'm not really a symphony guy. Right? But we got tickets to the symphony, and we, we got them, and we saw... I didn't know anything about the, the place. It was at this place called Bass Symphony Hall. Bass Symphony Hall is considered one of the top ten symphony halls in the world. Um, 
which part of the reason people had tickets there is because Maddie Bass, who was the granddaughter of Bass of Bass Hall, sent his kid to that school. So we go, and we've got tickets, and we're trying to figure out, what do we wear? We're seminary kids. We don't have stuff to wear to the symphony. And we go and we sit, and we have an enjoyable evening. We're like third row in the orchestra section, and it is some guy that plays the piano, and it's probably a world-famous guy that plays the piano, but I don't know who it is. And it was an enjoyable evening. And I thought about those two instances, all right? I am an avid baseball fan. And when I found out that I had tickets available to me and that they were really good tickets, I was determined to do whatever I could do to get to that baseball game. Right? I am not a symphony guy. And so the only way I was going to the symphony, I never went back to Bass Hall because I was sitting in the balcony after that, right? The only way I was going to sit in the symphony was if I was third row orchestra section. And they were free, right? Like, I love baseball. I'll do whatever I can to get there. Symphony. Now, some of you are judging me about that. Too bad. All right? I'm a country boy from West Tennessee. All right? I'm not. Now, here's the thing that's about worship. There are some of us, now when it comes to worship, we want all the conditions just right before we'll go. We want everything lined up for us just like we want it to be before we'll attempt to be a part of worship. And I was thinking this week about what does it require for you to truly engage in worship. And my mind works in kind of a strange way sometimes. And as I was thinking about that, the question then turned from, what does it take for me to get in a right state to worship, to what is God's conditions for me to be in the right state of worship? What does God require of me in order to hear and attend to my worship? Because here's the thing, in Scripture we are told over and over and over again, especially in the Old Testament, but there's also this underlying current in the New Testament, that sometimes you can go through all the motions and do all the right rituals and God will ignore your worship. Ignore it. And there are other times when you go through those same motions, when you do the same things, when you sing the same songs, and God will ignite your worship. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to take Isaiah chapter 58 and I want to ask the question, what are the requirements that God has? What does it ha- Why does he ignore our worship? And then how does he ignite our worship? And they're both found right here in Isaiah 58. And my prayer is, my hope is, that in the midst of that, we'll hear a word from the Lord and it will shake us out of the normalcy of what we do and we will be driven to a more passionate devotion to him. And it's an important message. I I believe it is a message directly from God. And I can tell you that because of what it says in Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 1. It says, cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. He says, what I'm about to say, I don't want you to hold back. I want you to be clear. I want you to say it loudly. I want you to do it in a way that people hear. Now, here's the thing. Some of you grew up in churches Where if the guy's veins weren't popping out of his head, he wasn't preaching. You know what I mean by that? 
Like if you couldn't see the sweat in the pew, the guy wasn't working hard enough. Those hellfire and brimstone yell at you until it's oh, and y'all, y'all, I mean, y'all know that's me, right? Every week. Okay, that's not me generally. I hope it's not me. That's not me generally. I'm more conversational. I'm more laid back. I'm more not in your face. But there are times when God's word says it's time to get in people's faces. And if the world around us can shout about trash and trivia, we ought to be able at times to scream about the things that God sees as important. Then he says, this is important. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare boldly what we're about to say. What does he want us to cry aloud? What does he want us to not hold back on? What does he want us to lift up our voice like a trumpet? The rest of the verse says this. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins. Ugh. Right? Yeah. That's not very exciting, Pastor. That's, <laughs> so you're going to yell at us all day about our sins. That's, that's what you're trying to make us feel bad, make us feel guilty, make us feel condemned. And here's what I want to tell you. I think this is an interesting passage because the reason he wants them to tell about their transgressions, we're going to see this in a moment, is they think everything's okay. And the reason he wants them to cry aloud, the reason he wants his prophet to not hold back, the reason he wants his prophet to lift up his voice like a trumpet is not so that he can condemn the people and remind them of how bad they are. He wants to wake them up. He is wanting them to understand where they are. They have lived comfortably under this illusion that they are right with God and there is something going on. And God is saying he loves them. He cares for them. He desires for them to be in relationship with him. He desires for them to worship him. He desires for them to be in his presence. And yet they are going about their business in a slumber, not realizing that sin has crept in and has destroyed their worship before the Lord. And he's saying it's time to wake them up. Everybody enjoy your hour and a half of less sleep today with our new schedule? I I guess not. That's the reaction I expected, right? So I went to bed last night knowing that um, this morning, it might be a little difficult getting up. Anybody else have trouble getting up this morning, right? A little difficult getting up. And uh, I get up really early on Sunday mornings. And usually because I get up really early on Sunday mornings, um, I, I have my phone. My phone's my alarm. I have it beside the bed. And I usually have it at half volume or less because when you're getting up that early on Sunday morning, you're the only one getting up that early on Sunday morning and you don't want to disturb people as much as possible, right? You don't want, I don't want to disturb Susan or the kids or any of that. And so I have it down. Last night, I knew it was going to be a difficult day. And so I turned it all the way up and laid it in the bed beside me. Okay. And this morning it went off. And I could not remember where I put it. And I started reaching on the floor and I started reaching all around. And then I found it in the bed and I heard from the other side of the bed, wow, that's loud. Now, let me interpret that for you. (laughs) Do you need interpretation on that? Right. The interpretation was shut the thing off, get out of bed, turn it off. Right. But I knew that I was going to be in deep slumber and I needed something that was going to arouse me from that sleep. Now, let me tell you this, and I mean this as a heart of a pastor, somebody that loves and cares about you, cares about your walk with the Lord. There are some of you that are in deep spiritual slumber. And the words that we're about to look at for the next few minutes 
can be the catalyst for what God is wanting to use to wake you up. And my prayer is that today will be a day when that phone volume is turned all the way up. And it shakes you from that sleep. Now here's what's interesting. So he says, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. And then these are their sins. Are you ready for them? You're probably thinking they're heinous, they're terrible, they're bad, they're horrible. I can't believe they're doing that. Look at what they're doing. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. That's terrible, isn't it? If there were a nation that were righteous, they don't forsake their judgment of God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Like, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's their sin? Does anybody else have a question about that? No, you don't. All right. That doesn't seem like sin, does it? This sounds like a purpose statement for a church. Lord, we want to seek you daily. We want to delight to know your ways. We want to be a nation that is after righteousness, that do not forsake the judgments of God. They, we want to be a nation that look for righteous judgments, that delight in drawing near to you, God. That's what the church is that we want to be. It's like when you look at somebody's website and they say, this is who we are. We're a church that daily seeks God and seeks righteousness in every way and looks for the judgments of God to follow them. And yet God says, tell them of their sins. And their sins are this. He goes on. And they say to me, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have you humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They go, what is a common complaint to God? They say, listen, we're doing everything you ask us to do, God. We're doing everything you've commanded us to do. We are following the festivals. We are doing the worship. We are doing the fasting. We are doing the singing. We are doing everything we possibly know. And you are not listening to us. What is the disconnect? Why the problem, God? What's wrong? Ever been in one of those places where you feel like you're trying to do everything God wants you to do and it still feels like he's just ignoring you? It just doesn't feel like you you can break through. It just feels like it's just stale, stagnant. That's where the Israelites were. And God's going to address the complaint that is here. And the first thing that we see out of this particular verse here is that sometimes when we feel like God is ignoring us, guess what God is doing? He's ignoring us. All right, that's it. We're done. Is that good? That's what you want to send out on a Sunday morning, right? We don't, we don't like to stop and linger there. But the truth is in Scripture, it tells us that sometimes when it feels like God is ignoring us, it's because God is ignoring us. And he's going to tell these people in just a moment the reasons he's ignoring their worship. And for us, I hope it's a wake-up call for the reasons he might be ignoring. And I want you to understand, worship here is a bigger concept than just this hour, but that this hour is impacted by this. And when we come together as a group of people, what the where we all stand in spiritual nature with our relationship with God impacts how we worship together as a group. And the first thing that we see is that God ignores our worship when we're already satisfied. Look what it says in verse 3 towards the end there. It says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean you seek your own pleasure? Well, what he means there when you look at the original language is not so much that you just go out and you come into worship and you're seeking your own stuff, although there is that kind of element there. What is said really there is that when you come to worship, you're already satisfied. You already have 
pretty much everything you want. And then you want to add God on top of that like a little cherry on top of the sundae and say, God, you're the flavor, you're the seasoning. You just bring, I've already got most everything I want, but just, just a little bit on top of that would be great. James McDonald, who's a pastor up in Chicago, said that most Christians come to worship on Sunday morning and they're already fed up, rested up, sexed up, and leisured up, and they have no need for anything else. And they say, God, oh, and if I could have a little bit of you too, that would be great. Now, we know how this works in life. Whenever you're completely satisfied, oversatisfied when it comes to eating, food turns into something you don't want, right? You ever been eating like Thanksgiving meal? And as good as it all is, there comes a point when you just go, I can't eat another bite. And it almost becomes like, ugh. Anybody ever been there? Every year. That's, that's good, Randy. Good honesty there. What do you, what do, you do when, when you are filled that full? When you have things that just, you fill everything you have, what do you want to do immediately following a big lunch like that? Sleep, right? Go take a nap. Go to bed. Maybe not bed, maybe the recliner watching the football game and just laid back. The problem many of us have with seeking after God is that we really don't think we need him because we've got everything we need. Revelation chapter 3, when uh, God is speaking to the different churches, the last church he speaks to is Laodicea. And as he's speaking to Laodicea at the end of that chapter, um, he says to them, You say we are fed, we are full, we are clothed. We have need of nothing. And one of the biggest issues with Western American Christianity is for the most part, we think we need nothing. Perhaps the reason for the shallowness of Christianity in the West is because we already have everything we need. Do you realize that our generation of Christians, in American Christianity in particular, that no group of normal Christians, just like us, have ever had as much political influence or power or structures built to support their faith or freedom to share their faith with others. No group of Christians in the history of the world, normal lay Christians, have ever had as much material possessions as we have. And sometimes we have to come to the understanding that all of that may not be the blessing of God, but maybe the curse of the enemy. Because it prevents us from seeing the need we have for him. A couple of years ago, I was at uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. And as part of the Southern Baptist Convention, they have this panel of speakers. And they uh, have a panel of speakers for a group of young pastors. In fact, I don't think I qualify for that anymore because you have to be under 40. So, go figure, right? And so I was at this panel, and so one of the guys speaking there was a guy named David Platt. David Platt's now president of the International Mission Board, written books, done Bible studies. And David is actually a guy younger than me uh, by about a year. And so we were, he was on this panel, and they were talking about our current state of Christianity and America and all of that. And he said, I think if a Christian from any other era visited our era, uh, from any other time, place in time, came to our place in time, that two things would stand out that would be offensive to him about the way we live. He said, first of all, is the way we tolerate sexuality of all kinds. And he wasn't talking about Supreme Court rulings and all of that. He was talking about Christian people who tolerate the, just the sexual innuendo, the, the, um, the billboards, the television shows, the movies. It's everywhere. It's just pervasive. Sexuality is pervasive. He said that would be one. 
And the second is the materialistic nature of American Christians. This past week was consignment sale week here at the church. And it's a, it's a great event for missions. And the ladies that put that on do a great job. And as part of what happens with consignment sale time at our house is spring clean-out time at our house. So buckets come out of storage. We, we, we I use that term. Susan goes through all those and decides what we keep and what we sell and all that toys. I mean, kids are like, we're like, you got too many toys. And we take them from them, pry them out of their hands as they're crying. You know, we don't, a couple of times we've done that. But you, like, we're going to sell this stuff and, you know, we're, we're getting rid. We're cleaning out. We're doing all this stuff. We bring all this stuff to consignment sale. And then there's a whole pile of stuff that's not consignment sale stuff. It's goodwill stuff. And there's a whole set of stuff that's sell and variety sale stuff. There's a whole set of, you know, it's like we clean out our house and we're like, we got all this stuff. And you know what we do with the stuff that doesn't sell the consignment sale? We put that in the goodwill stack and we send it out. And we just got stuff that we got running out of our ears and we got to get rid of it. We're rich. We have clothing. We have need of nothing. Scripture says that blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And part of the issue we have with our worship on Sunday mornings is we come into this place already completely full. And I'm not just talking about food or clothing, but every desire we have has already been met. That's why throughout Scripture, and even in this passage, he will talk about worship, and part of worship he will talk about right alongside of it is fasting. And honestly, if we were more biblically accurate in the title of this series, it would have been called Prayer, Fasting, and Worship, because fasting throughout Scripture is tied to worship because it elevates our sense and our need for the Lord. Fasting is one of those things growing up I didn't talk about a lot, I didn't hear about a lot. It was for certain people, super Christians and that kind of thing. But as I study scripture over and over again, I see that it is for people who simply want to seek the Lord. So a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I started to participate in seasons of fasting. And we don't announce those because scripture says not to announce it. But here's what I can tell you I've learned in those seasons of fasting is that I am incredibly weak. And even the smallest sacrifice is very difficult. A few years ago, I decided I'll start small. I'm going to give up something small. And I gave up caffeine for six weeks. That's it. I'm just not going to drink my Diet Dr. Peppers. Now, that is small. If you know me, I drink Diet Dr. Pepper a lot. I like it. It tastes good. I'm not, going to, I'm not ashamed of that. But I just, I'm going to, no coffee, no Diet Dr. Pepper, no tea, caffeinated. I'm just going to take caffeine. And on Thursday, I was literally sitting in my office sweating and shaking and like, I felt like I was in a detox program. It was just hard as I progressed to give up larger things or bigger things. Here's what I've discovered in my weakness is in those moments, my attention is turned to my need for the Lord. God may be ignoring your worship because you're already filled. God will be your hunger or nowhere to be found. So the first reason that God ignores our worship is because We're already satisfied. The second reason is found right there in the end of verse 3. And it says, because we have our worship as secondary. Look what he says. You can go back. I jumped ahead of you, Wes. And oppress all your workers. You're like, what does that mean? We're not oppressing any workers today. 
What he means is that you're so concerned about your own pleasure, you're so concerned about your own stuff, you're so concerned about who you are, you can't even give up the thought of other things for this time period when you have set aside to worship the Lord. So while you're here worshiping, you got people in the fields making sure everything gets taken care of. And it goes to a sense of priority. He says the priority of your life is demonstrated by your time commitment. And even while you're worshiping, you can't get your mind off of other stuff. So God ignores our worship not only not only when we're already satisfied, but also when our worship is secondary. What's the priority of your life? Where do you spend your time, your money, your talent? What do you do with all of that stuff? What is the priority of your life? I mentioned earlier that um, we we only want to come to worship sometimes when everything's just right. When, when we sing the right songs at the right time, when the room's the right temperature, when we're appropriately dressed and everything's just right, when we've got everything settled at home, when we don't have ball games to attend in different places, when we didn't have a too late of a Saturday night, when we don't have a vacation already planned that we want to get away with the family. We want to do worship when it fits into our schedule instead of fitting our schedule around our worship. And when God says it's a secondary thing for you, it's, it's a, not a priority in your life, why in the world am I going to meet you there when it's a secondary concern? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we are to seek first our priorities and our schedule. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? No. What does it say? Seek first what? Kingdom of God. When our first thought in the morning is, what do I do today for the kingdom of God? When my first thought of the week is, how do I make sure that my family is a part of celebrating Christ together in church? He says, listen, you come to me and you, you lift up hands and you do all this stuff, but, but, but your heart is still concerned about other stuff. You ever had a conversation with somebody and you can tell that they are thinking about something else the whole time? Yes, this means yes. Have you ever had that conversation? How many of you had that conversation today, maybe, all right? In our day, anybody ever had a conversation with somebody that can't get off their phone while they're having a conversation with you? Don't be looking around, don't be pointing, all right? How does that feel? Like, like... You ever, I mean, I know there's kind of service. You ever had like a, like you want to have a real conversation with somebody? And as you're talking to them, you realize they are not invested in this at all. Have you ever had that? Right? How do you think God is going to respond when he comes to have a moment of meeting with us in a corporate worship environment? And we got ten other things on our mind. God ignores our worship when our worship is secondary. Here's the third thing. Verse 4. Look what it says. Behold... You fast, you worship, you celebrate, you come into the house only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. He says, listen, what you're doing right now is not going to be listened. It's going to be ignored because you're doing it with quarreling and strife and wicked wicked fist ready to strike. The idea here is God ignores our worship when we our lives are filled with strife. We cannot be right with the Lord. And be at odds with other people. We cannot be right with the Lord and be at odds with other people. 
Scripture mentions it over and over. It's right here in Isaiah 58. Jesus says over in uh, Matthew that if you've got a problem with somebody and you've come to the altar to worship and you've got a problem with somebody, set down your offering at the altar, go find that person, make things right with them, and then come back and worship. The idea is that if we have problems or strife or we are holding hatred or bitterness towards other people, then what is happening is we are preventing ourselves from being able to worship our God. And we think that, man, we, we just get everything right with God and it'll be good. And then we got all these relationships that we still got problems with. I was listening to a sermon this week from a pastor and he said um, that he was talking about strife. He was talking about conflict. And he says, I can honestly say to you that no one could walk through that door this morning that I wouldn't be able to give a hug to and tell them I loved them and welcome them in Christ. I hold no bitterness toward any human being. And I listened and I thought, man. Is that true of me? But I hold no bitterness, I hold no grudge, I hold no anger towards anybody. Now, the same pastor said, now, I didn't say people couldn't walk in here that were mad at me. I'm just saying that for myself, I'm no longer mad at them. When I, when I started pastoring uh, in Ripley 15 years ago, uh, one of the things that, that happened pretty early on and happened for about the first year and a half of my ministry in Ripley is I would occasionally get an anonymous letter. Here's what I discovered quickly. When people wrote anonymous letters, they were not trying to tell me how good of a job I was doing. Right? One of my favorite things about emails is there are no anonymous emails. Right? And so I would get an anonymous letter in the mail, and they were sometimes nasty. I mean, they, they, I got one one time that had the title of my sermon circled, and it was like, how to be a man after God's own heart. And the title of the sermon was circled and there was a line drawn out to the side and a question that said, why can't you live what you preach? Like, oh, that's encouraging. Thank you for that. I was looking forward. And here's the thing about those anonymous letters. They weren't anonymous because I knew who was sending them. The same handwriting every time. I knew because I'd seen the handwriting who it was. I just want to be real honest with you, as a 25-year-old kid who was pastoring his first church, that was, man, that was hard for me. You know, I'd, I'd see him in the hallway of church, do that whole sidestep, turn around, find somewhere else to go for a minute. He'd come shake my hand. I'd squeeze a little harder, right? I just remember the Lord one day kind of waking me up and saying, who do you think you're really hurting here? He got ill, went in the hospital. While I was talking with him in the hospital that day, I just remember doing one of the most freeing things I did in that instance is I forgave him for something he would have never meant to doing. It didn't change. He still wrote me another one. But it's not dependent on him. It's dependent on me. Romans 12, 8 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And here's what I want to tell you. For some of you in this room, there is somebody who has hurt you, who has wronged you. And what is happening in your life right now is you are allowing that person to prevent your worship of the Lord to move forward. And it may be time to forgive, to make a phone call, to write a letter. Not anonymous, normal, right? And admit to your part of it and ask for forgiveness 
and forgive whether or not they do as well. God ignores our worship when we're filled with strife. And here's the last thing God ignores our worship with. God ignores our worship when it is superficial. Look at what he kind of says. God ignores our worship. There it is. Is this the fast that I've chosen? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Now, that's just kind of stuff over our head there. What is he talking about? He says, is this what I really want? Is this what I really want from you? That you just bow as low as you can. That all you care about is physical appearance. That your head's on the ground and you have got your head to the ground. And that's all that you care about is, hey, do people see me being as, as low to the ground as I can be? Or that you wear sackcloth and ashes. Um, sackcloth, the best description I can give is made out of animal's hair. The best description I can give for a modern kind of thing that people have is like burlap. Okay? And what would happen is when people really wanted to show other people that they were mourning over something or their relationship with the Lord, they, they would wear uh, sackcloth and nothing else. Okay? So imagine making a shirt and pants made out of burlap and nothing else. It is uncomfortable. It, it, it's something that humbles you. And so they would wear that and then they would pour ashes on their head. They would burn stuff and pour ashes to say, look at me, I'm lowly. And God says to them, look, I don't want somebody that just in appearance is going through the motions and trying to make people think that this is what worship looks like. If your heart is not behind it, if it's just superficial, if your life does not follow what you're doing in that hour on Sunday morning, then it's not worth doing. God says, I got no time for it. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, a verse is repeated, and it says this, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God says, I will ignore your worship if that's the case. Isaiah 58, he tells them, listen, you're coming, you're coming to worship, but, but your hearts are far from me. You're filled with strife and anger towards other people. You're not fulfilling the law that I've called you to. The priority of worship is secondary in your life. And you come already satisfied and ask me just to give you a little extra topping. I will ignore all of that worship. And then he tells us two things that he wants his worship to be about. And this is it and we're done. That's the worship God ignores. Here's the worship he ignites. First of all, God ignites worship when we embrace our freedom. Look at what he says to him uh, just... In those verses that follow after that. Is this not the fast which I'll choose? This is what I want. He said, this is it. This is it, okay? Here's the idea. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Don't get caught up in the symbolism of each individual thing. Just look at the big picture. And the big picture is that I want you to celebrate the freedom that I have given you for us, specifically in Christ. You have been free. If the Son sets you free, you are Free indeed. Sin is no longer a part of your life. Don't act like you are morose and that you are, you are defeated. Come into this place with a heart that is exuberant, ready to worship, ready to celebrate, ready to give joy. Come ready to celebrate the freedom that you have in Christ. Do you like being around people that are negative all the time? No, is the answer. Right? Around Debbie Downer that always finds a cloud and a silver lining, right? Nobody likes to be around them. And as Christians, sometimes we give off this whole thing of the world is falling apart. I can't believe what's happening in the election. I don't know what's happening to America. It's going to that. It's all the, And we forget the freedom we have in Christ. It doesn't matter what happens in America. It does. But it doesn't. 
right? That's the only thing some of you are going to hear. Our pastor says it doesn't matter what happens in America. Here's the truth. In the big scope of things, it doesn't. Because my penalty has been paid. You know what I love about when you think about that whole strife thing up there? That whole, you know, we talked about that a minute ago, strife with other people. God looks at us and basically says, listen, what I want you to understand is there can be no barrier or distance between you and another person that is greater than the distance that I've already overcome between me and you. You hear that? You can have no barrier or distance between you and somebody else that is greater than the barrier that I've already overcome in getting to you. And he says, celebrate that. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. Not only that, but God ignites our worship when we express the compassion of Christ. Now, the easiest way to say this is, God ignites our worship when we obey. He's called us to be compassionate, and he calls us to obey. Look what he says in Isaiah 58. Is it not the the fast I want to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, see the naked to cover him, and to not hide hide yourself from your own flesh? He says a couple of things. First of all, to give. Now, now when we hear help the hungry, the thing we think is, oh, that's cool. I've got ten loaves of bread. I'll give them a loaf of bread. Out of my abundance, I'll give a little. But in their day and time, you have to understand, nobody had ten loaves of bread. Nobody had abundance. What he's saying is, out of my little, little, I'll give a lot. There's a big difference between those of us in today with our materialism says, oh, I've got everything I could ever need. I'll give you a little piece of what I already have to help you out here. And opposed to those who didn't have their daily bread saying, oh, I don't have much at all, but what I have, I give. He wants us to give sacrificially. The example is the Good Samaritan. You remember that story, right? Guy gets hurt, gets stripped, uh, has nothing left. Preacher passes by, music guy passes by, and then a guy from the other side of the track nobody likes comes by, helps him. And what we miss in that story oftentimes, he takes him to an inn, he tells him to to get well, and he pays them for what's going to happen over the next few days with the guy. And if you read the story, he says, and if he incurs more debt, I will come back and pay it. In that story, what we realize is he gives the guy every single thing he has. And then he says, if he needs more, I'll bring it. He's not thinking, I got ten loaves, I'll give him one. He's like, here are all ten, take it. And if I need to go get five more, I will. People ask me, why do we do Los Angeles? We're about to go eat spaghetti soon, I promise. We're going to eat spaghetti, we're going to give a donation. Why don't we go to Los Angeles? Why don't we go to Brazil? Why don't we go to Chile? Why don't we go to Lynch? Here's the thing, because Christ has called us to show compassion to those that need compassion, and that's all I need to go. But here's the thing, this is the hardest thing in the whole, whole, whole thing. Not only do we show our compassion to those that are hungry, not only to those that are naked, that need clothing, not only to the homeless, but to those that are not far from your own flesh. That means your family. And sometimes, sometimes, the hardest place to show compassion is among the people that know you best. Let me ask you a question here. If you're, if you're here today and you've got a spouse, do you know how to push their buttons, right? Do they know how to push yours? You know what I'm talking about, like, like get you angry quickly. If you're thinking something else, sorry, but like, like do you know how to say something to get them set off real quick? Oh, I would never do that. Yeah, sure you wouldn't, all right? Sometimes the hardest people it sees that we need to show compassion to are the people that are right next to us. And God desires people that have come into worship that have been serving their families all week. 
So here's the deal. God says, I won't take any worship that is centered on you, that is centered on already being filled, that is secondary in nature, that is filled with strife. I won't take it. That's superficial. But I will if you come to me with a heart that is clean on the inside and showing compassion on the out. Let's pray together.